Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guests. And I'm going to tell you something, people. It's uh, this week in the New Jersey. It's in the 60s, which is unbelievable. It's setting records. And uh, I'm quite excited because I've been going out in the cold weather. And this last week, our temperature was like 51, 32, 45, 66, and 67. And it's sort of like the uh, the lottery, the pick five. And uh, we actually won today. Anyway, we have a great show today. Uh, my guest is a writer, producer. He was uh, he was in a movie that I absolutely loved. It came out in 1984. I, I love this movie, and it's it's hard to find now. And uh, my guest is Dana Olson. How you doing, Dana? I'm good. How are you? Good. Now, you're in Evanston, so you guys are in the midst of that storm, right? Yeah, I, I think it's probably coming your way. The wind's blowing like 30 miles an hour outside this morning. Um, we're hitting everything here. Yesterday it rained. Today it's uh, blowing wind like crazy, and later on it's supposed to snow. So it's been a lot of fun here. Yeah, exactly. So i got to ask you a question to start. I want to talk about your career, but I, I saw Gary Kroger uh, posted a picture of you and him and another gentleman with penises on your nose with glasses. And, <laughs> and yes. I, I believe you did some show. I want to hear what that's from, and I heard you, you guys did a show last week, right? We did. We uh, This has been like our fourth New Year's. It's the first one Gary's done with us for about five years. Tradition here in Evanston, where a bunch of us guys that uh, started out in comedy at Northwestern years ago um, get together once a year and uh, do a comedy review like we used to do in the old days. And uh, a, a friend of ours, Steve Rashid, who's an amazing musician, has a beautiful uh, performance venue at Evanston part of the Evanston Dance Center that his wife Bea runs. And a few years ago, once they opened it up, nothing was going on over New Year's. And uh, Paul Barras, who's another classmate of Gary uh, and mine, um, he and I and his wife Victoria had done a comedy review in Hollywood. And we thought, ah, you know, I mean, nobody's ever doing anything over New Year's. It's always kind of a drag. So why don't we do a show? And um, so we resurrected some old comedy material and, and wrote some new sketches. And we've been doing this now for, uh, I think this was our fifth New Year's show in Evanston. And, and we brought Gary on board this year. And uh, the um, the old uh, adage for our type of theater was, was it uh, no joke too cheap, no prop too large? <laughs> and, and Paul showed up with a bunch of... Uh, uh, Groucho Marx sort of glasses, only the noses were actually penises. Right. So I, I confess and I apologize to all your <laughs> listeners that yes, we did go that low. I love it. You know, when I when I did stand up comedy years ago, when I started out, I had such stage fright that I actually wore them. Um, I wore them once as a prop, and I said, "Oh, look, I'm a dickhead," and it was such a cheap <laughs> laugh. But it was it got me over that stage fright in the beginning. Everybody loves a cheap laugh. Come on, man. You know, it was it was just a very it was a momentary thing at the very end of the song, and we, you know, usually get one comment. Well, I thought that was unnecessary. Yeah. Then we know we scored. <laughs> you know. So now, when did you start? When did you know you wanted to get into this profession? I know you went to Northwestern, and but as a yeah. kid, as a kid, were you a funny kid? Were you a theater kid, or did it something that you grew into as you got older? 
know, um, I started out uh, drawing cartoons. You know, I had two older sisters, so I didn't have any brothers, and I spent a lot of time in my room by myself. And I drew cartoons. I was, like, addicted to Mad Magazine. I used to knock off the caricatures. And I ended up placing a... Um, a cartoon in my high school newspaper. And then that led to me getting hired uh, to write for the high school variety show. And that was kind of the first time I got on stage. And then I started doing um, stand up when I was in high school uh, in, in a couple of clubs in Chicago when I was like 17. Um, and I didn't really have much of an act, but I was kind of um, unique because I was so young and they let me, you know, they let me have the stage. So I had like about six minutes or something when I was in uh, when I was in high school, and then I got to Northwestern and I got into the improv thing. So yeah, I would say yeah, about midway through high school when I got into the uh, the variety show at school is when I started thinking, oh, this is fun. Now, you know, it came easier to me than a lot of other things. Now, was Northwestern your first choice? Because it's such a good school, and I don't know, was it? I don't. Sometimes I think that it's so hard to get into now because you and so many other great. Uh, talents have come out of it. They probably raised the the admissions and made it like super tough. But what was it like to get in when you were there? Was the theater department that renowned and what you know that whole area? It was. I wasn't a theater major. I wanted to study film, and uh, originally the plan was to go to the University of Illinois. But I think at the time that that I was uh, applying, they had closed down their program. So um, my dad had gone to Northwestern. He was an engineer, but. Uh, but yeah, they had a rep for the theater department, but I wanted to study film, so I actually got admitted as a as a film major, and the standards were a lot lower. There's no way I would get into Northwestern now. I mean, my you know my high school grades were far from outstanding, and uh, but back in those days, you know, you actually went in and had a personal interview with like an admissions officer, and. Um, and I think I did well on that. And then I get, you know, some of the extracurriculars looked like, you know, they're a little unique. So, but there's no way I'd get it now. It was a lot different then. So you, you were a film guy. Now, how did you end up in the improv world? Um, you know, there was just like one afternoon, um, like on a Thursday afternoon or something, I saw an ad in the student newspaper that they were uh, holding auditions for the Improv Comedy Review and having done something similar in high school, I thought, oh, this might be kind of fun, because I wasn't having a great time my freshman year, you know, everybody was going to the library and studying every night, which is not what I was used to, and uh, so I, I went and I auditioned for this improv show, and it turned out that a guy that I had known in high school that I had competed against in forensics was was in the show, it was, it's the Meow Show, it's still running, they're coming close to like 50 years now. And um, and I got cast my freshman year, and then that's where I ended up meeting uh, Paul and, and Gary. Well, Gary went, actually, I've been in a different show, but and then later on, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and, you know, a lot of really funny, you know, talented people. And that's the most fun I had at college, absolutely, hands down, was doing that improv show. Now, how did the other students, did they, did they love it? Like, was it something that you guys, it was something that they didn't do, so they would come and watch it and just, think it was great um yeah it was it was pretty um it was pretty new when we got there I, originally it started i think like in the middle 70s um as a student produced variety show and then uh about the year i got there they changed the format to sort of make it 
uh, a second city improvis- style improvisational comedy we do. And during the four years that I was there, we we definitely grew an audience. Um, you know, it went to we we put it up in a in a small auditorium that was built for projecting films. So there was no backstage. It was very intimate. I think there's maybe 250 chairs in there, maybe. And we would have like you know half a house my freshman year. But by the time we got to be seniors, we were doing we were selling out two nights two nights a week on Friday and Saturdays. And, uh, and doing two shows on both of those nights, too. We do like an 8 o'clock and an 11 o'clock or something. So we really grew an audience. And, uh, yeah, it, it was a lot of fun. I mean, you know, tickets were like a buck fifty or something. But and everybody's always looking for something to do at, at night in college. Um, and this was an easy thing to do and a fun thing. And so, uh, so yeah, it, was, it, it, it grew. And, and now it's like become this institution sort of on campus. So, so you, you're doing that, and then when you when North when your time at Northwestern is up, what are your career plans? What what do you plan to do? Do you plan to go to L.A.? Do you plan to go to Chicago? Because there's a, a scene there. What did you want to do, and what did you do? So, um, I originally I thought I wanted to be a stand-up comedian, and and I planned to, you know, go out to L.A. after graduation and take a crack at that. Paul and his uh, his directing producing partner Brad Hall who ended up marrying Julia they stayed in Chicago and started the Pratsville Theater Company um, what happened was while I was an undergraduate Gary Marshall a huge uh, television producer who had Happy Days and Laverne Shirley and Mork and Mindy on the air at the time that I was an undergrad um, and who we lost two years ago sadly um, came back to do a uh, visiting artist program at Northwestern and I got to know him and talking to him, I thought, well, you know, maybe it would be smarter to try uh, smarter. Uh, I think I'll take a shot at being a writer as well as being a uh, stand-up comedian. And I got to know him, and I knocked out a spec Laverne and Shirley script and sent it to him. And thinking, you know, well, there's a connection when I move out to L.A. And then his office called me two weeks before I graduated and offered me a staff job on Laverne and Shirley. So that's how I got to L.A. I literally graduated on Saturday. On Monday, I was in L.A. with an office on the Paramount lot working as a staff writer. Guild, guild position on, uh, on Laverne and Shirley. So that was the break of breaks. Oh, that's, that's, and, that's uh, amazing. I mean, you know, when you, that's just, you sit there, you hear about people, you know, struggling. Well, even Gary's story about getting on, you know, SNL. It's something that there was must have yeah. been magic in the air in Chicago at that time because you guys were landing jobs in a way that are very unconventional. Yeah, and you know the Gary and, and Paul and Brad and Julie story was perhaps even more amazing. They were doing practical theater out of a, a storefront on Howard Street, which is the the dividing line between Evanston and Chicago. You could drink on the south side of the street, you couldn't drink on the north side of the street. They opened up uh, a, like an eighty seat theater and were doing improvisational comedy shows, you know, like the Meow Show, and trying to get an audience in, and eventually. Um, they grew an audience like we did on campus and Bernie Salins at Second City offered them the use of what had been the Paul Sill Story Theater which is behind uh, the Second City building uh, in Piper's Alley in Chicago and they went in and, and, uh, and mounted an improv review there and that's when uh, Dick Ebersol came and he was 
you know, casting a new season of Saturday Night Live, and he hired the four of them on the spot for Saturday Night Live. I think that was 1982. So I'd been in L.A. for two years by then when that happened. But yeah, lots of really great stuff was was happening to our, you know, our crew. Now, now, do you feel like when you, what was your uh, experience in writing TV scripts? You wrote a spec, but did you really know the formula? Did you know the layout? I mean, it's something that, you know, specs, a TV script is different than a movie script. I mean, what was your knowledge when you wrote that? Um, very rudimentary. I mean, you know, I sort of knew that there had to be a big idea in the episode and there had to be a beginning and a middle and an end, but in terms of, you know, format and all that um very rudimentary um but you know gary saw something and i think i actually actually wrote two gary saw something in one of them and uh you know and then coming out to the show i mean you pick it up very very quickly now of course this was back in the days before computers so we would actually sit around a table make notes by hand ship it out to be typed and then when we were reworking the script you would literally cut pieces of the page out and paste them on new pages like in school. I mean, it was unbelievable. Now, so. now, now was it intimidating for you because you were so young? I mean, it, you really didn't have time to breathe, and all of a sudden you're in Hollywood. You have a job on a show that everybody knows. I mean, what is what was it going through your mind when you were on that plane or if you drove? I don't know how you got there. Were you nervous or were you scared? Yeah, I was nervous. Um, I had a pal who had been a year ahead of me at Northwestern whose parents lived in L.A., and so I had an apartment lined up. So I had a buddy that I could live with. And uh, um, and there were, you know, I had a couple of friends out there. But, yeah, I was working all the time, and everybody was older than me. I was, you know, the youngest guy on the staff by far. But, I, you know, it was it was really... I was nervous and I was kind of lonely because I didn't really know anybody, but it was really fun because, you know, I was surrounded by guys that had written on The Odd Couple and, you know, Gary was really great. He had, uh, he always had a space on one of his staffs for an older comedy writer, usually a guy that had given him a break when he was a young comedy writer. And there's a funny story. There was a guy on the Happy Days staff. We shared the same office floors. They did. They were on the other end of the building. And he had a guy on the Happy Days staff named Harry Crane, who had been around so long he'd written for the Marx Brothers. And uh, and I remember a story, there was some young writer, it wasn't me, but somebody on the Happy Day staff was like having a rough day and saying, God, I don't know. He goes, is this real, real writing? I mean, all I do is write Fonzie enters and everybody claps. He goes, I don't know if I could do this anymore. This is driving me crazy. I don't know. I don't know. And Harry Crane says, you know, kid, when I'm feeling like that, you know what I do? And he takes a cigar out of his mouth and he goes, I put my paycheck on the front seat of my Mercedes and drive home going, zippity doo da So, so it was really fun, you know? There are guys like that hanging around for radio and stuff. I mean, it was, it was a good time. So now when you're, when you're writing, are you taking time to do stand-up or was that not in the equation or right now? No, I stopped doing stand-up after, uh, after I uh, was making a living as a writer, stand-up is so hard. Um, so, And I never really had much of an act. I really kind of just did it as a hobby. I, w- I never, you know, as a, you know, as a student, I was doing it because it was fun. And but, but, man, to actually try to do that as a living. I have friends that have been stand-up comedians for 40 years, and it's, it's a really rugged way to make a living. 
Now, you're, you're writing. Now, how did the movie Making Grey come about? I love that movie. I, you know, it's funny. I was, I was trying to... It's one of those things. There's that and there's a movie called Windy City Heat that is from in Chicago. And you can't... It's so hard to find them. Like, I found Windy City Heat on YouTube. Making the Grade, I can't find. I guess I, I should go on Amazon. But you're a writer. How do you end up co-starring in a movie? So what happened was... Um... A friend of mine, Gene Quintano, had written that, and he was producing it for Canon, and it was a you know it was a very low budget thing, and, and he was uh, um, uh, the marching orders were to try to make a comedy sort of based on the preppy thing that was happening in the early eighties, and um, so he he wrote the script, and and they went ahead and pressed the production button as Kane was wont to do. They were rushing the production, um, and uh, so. He had a location nailed down in Memphis, Tennessee, and he had a director, but he did work on the script. So he wanted to hire me as a writer, but the Canon guys would not spring for extra money uh, to work on the script. They were just like, no, no, it's fine the way it is. Just go shoot it. And so he cast me so that I would be, you know, on location and help him with the script as we went along. So my role grew. <laughs> <laughs> During uh, during production, and um, so that's how that happened. Actually, I can you know, and I had a little acting experience, obviously coming out of the improv scene at Northwestern and stuff. So I sort of knew what I was doing, and um, so he liked what he saw. He auditioned me for the director. The director was like, "Fine," and I played this guy who was supposed, you know, Palmer Woodrow. He's supposed to be out of the movie after like the first reel and not come back. But then you know, they found a way to write me into the last couple of reels I come back from Europe or whatever it is and complicate things for Judd. So that's how that happened. Now, and then I never acted again. I, I know. Really I was, I was going to ask you, you know, it's like you're in a movie and it's funny because Dice was in it and Judd Nelson and uh, and it, yeah. and I, I loved the movie. I thought it was great. It's like I'm one of those things. I oh, love that you. 80s stuff. But now, what, why why did you decide not to act? Did you just like writing better? Because you had a role. You were in a movie. Most people die to do that. Why did you walk away from acting? Yeah, you know, you make weird decisions when you're young. I mean, I was making a living as a writer and as an actor. You know, I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to have to start over again. I'm going to be in a bunch of these, like, you know, teen exploitation movies if I do it. And so I kind of, I, I was a little self-conscious about it. First of all, I have no acting chops. I mean, I'm, I'm really just kind of playing, you know, myself, or like a, a stand-up version of myself in that movie. So I was a little self-conscious about that. But, you know, looking back, yeah, maybe I could have doubled down on it and gotten some success. But like I said, I was making a living um, as a writer, so that would have been sort of a big step. And I think I was wary of biting off more than, more than I could really chew. Um, but, you know, sure, I look back and I go, huh, hmm, what if, maybe if I, you know, let them roll me as an actor a little bit more, maybe something else interesting would have happened. But on the other hand, too, I, didn't, I don't mind being anonymous walking down the street. You know? Right. So being a writer is always fun, fine with me. Now, you also wrote, uh, after Laverne Shelley, you wrote for uh, Johnny Loves Chachi. What was that like writing? Because that was that was a spinoff. That, I'm sure that wasn't like you're walking into Laverne and Shirley, which was such a huge hit. It was a spinoff. Right. So what's it like starting off, going from a proven entity to something that's newer? 
actually that I was not on staff for that. I, I essentially freelanced one episode of that because they needed to, you know, get, I don't know, 13 or 26 produced. Um, I had left Laverne and Shirley to do a, uh, a feature film uh, with David Steinberg and the SCTV guys at Universal called Going Berserk, which did not work, but was great because I got to work with Candy and Flaherty and Levy and all those guys and David Steinberg. And they came back to me and said, hey, we, you know, we need an episode of Joni Loves Chachi. And they threw me this idea. They basically, you know, said, here's what we want to do with the episode. And, and they gave me that episode. So so I wrote that. So I didn't know that show super well. And I don't, I didn't last more than a season, I don't think. I don't know. But, um, yeah, but the, you know, basically the, the tone of the show was consistent with uh with Laverne and Shirley and Happy Days and and uh, and all the producers and all the guys were were dudes that I knew so um so that wasn't it wasn't difficult it was it was kind of like just another episode of of Happy Days really and uh and, but that had been expanded now to, uh, it, now when you uh you, when you were, when did you start learning how to write screenplays? You were writing TV, and then you said, "Going Berserk's a screenplay." When did you, when did you learn to write, and what made you go into that direction? So, uh, when I got to Laverne and Shirley, um, the uh, Screen Actors Guild went on strike like two weeks after I got to the show. So I got to Hollywood. I worked for four weeks. And then they shut down all of television because the Screen Actors Guild was on strike. And we were they were out for like two and a half months. So I just, I wrote a screenplay in my, in my downtime. I think I maybe bought Sid Field's book or something, How to Write a Screenplay. And, uh, and I wrote one with my, uh, with my then buddy slash roommate. And um, it was a slasher movie parody. Um, Years and years, I might add, before the Scary Movie franchise, and it was called The Lawnmower Killer, and um, and we finished it, and by that time, I had another pal from Northwestern who was in the training program of the William Morris Agency. They made him an agent. He took me as his first client. I gave him my script. He ended up selling it to an independent uh, producer. I went back to Laverne and Shirley, um, did another season, then the Writers Guild went out on strike, and I wrote another movie script in, in my downtime. That was a longer strike. That one lasted from, like, June to October or something. And by the way, I'm not getting paid while this is happening, but, but, I, but I'd sold this, this slasher movie uh, uh, parody script, so I had a little bit of money in the bank, and they, went, and they made that picture. It was called, they, they ended up calling it Wacko. Um, they made it for about $900,000, I think, maybe even less, I don't know. Um, but with a couple of people in the cast, Stella Stevens, George Kennedy, Joe Don Baker, Dice Clay was in that movie. Um, and uh, so I just kind of like, you know, learned by experience. I just, I, I was cranking them out during the first two major stri labor strikes that occurred while I was in Hollywood. And I got lucky with one of them. Um, so that's how I, I, you know, I was kind of self-taught, I guess, in a way. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people back then were, you know, it's something that I, everyone, I lived in Hollywood for a while, and everyone had had a had the Sid Field book, you know, that and read the William yeah. William Goldman Adventures in Screen Trade. You know, they were like the two books right. back then that everybody read. It's changed now because people don't go to, a, what is it, Samuel French. They don't go to that 
you know, I think it closed. So no one, everyone does everything online, but those were the go-to books. But now, for you, what for you, you're a young guy, you have this writing job, and then there's a strike. And then you're writing, and there's another strike. You're writing the screenplays, but do you get frustrated at all, thinking, you know, you have this staff writing job, and everyone keeps going on strike. Is it, was it pissing you off at all? Um... It was a little frightening because, you know, when you're young and you don't know any better, it's like, oh, my God, it's, it's the end of Hollywood. I got here, I got a job, and now it's all blowing up. And now it's, you know, what, 40 years later, 40-some-odd years later, and I've been through, you know, eight or nine of these strikes. And uh, and even now, what, the, the Writers Guild has fired all the agents like a year ago, and, and nobody has an agent anymore. So, I mean, you know, things change. But, but yeah, I was it, it was frustrating. Um, but the nice part was, um, cause the second strike, the writer's guild, I wrote a, a spec script. It was a Godzilla parody called it a Cleveland. And, uh, and I got a lot of traction out of that. I got a lot of, uh, uh, meetings, uh, coming out of the strike with, uh, uh, with feature development people at the studios because not a lot of material had been produced during the strike and they were looking to feed the production pipeline. And, and I ended up getting a lot of uh, getting a lot of meetings and, and picked up you know a job here and there. So so actually being forced to stay home and write because of the strike turned out to be a good thing. But at the time, it was it was scary and a little nerve wracking because I didn't you know I didn't know what to expect. So with your screenwriting, you know, as you said, Wacko was a lower budget. Going Berserk, I'm sure, wasn't a huge budget. Well, then The Burbs comes along, and that ends up being a, a pretty big budget movie with a young Tom Hanks. When did you start yeah. writing that, and how did that end up getting made? So The Burbs actually derived from a half-hour pilot I wrote and sold to CBS called The Sheriff of Maple Street. And uh, that came close to getting produced, but they had something else going, I don't know, that bumped it. I got the rights back. CBS was very generous with me, by the way. And I got the rights in terms of letting me have the rights to the, to the pilot script back. And, um, and I expanded it into a screenplay. And I was carrying that around uh, as sort of my calling card, my audition piece, so to speak. And uh, it bounced around a number of places. It was at, uh, uh, it got optioned by a couple of different companies. I think David, David Geffen's company, um, when they were, you know, um, making features early on in, in, uh, in the history of that company, um, they optioned it for a while. Then it went to um, Billy Crystal's management company, who had produced a couple of things for Billy, and Billy was attached to it to play the Ray Peterson role for a while. And then he fell out to do something else, and it ended up at uh, Brian Grazer, Ron Howard's company, Imagine. And uh, we got Joe Dante attached, and but it still... It still wasn't a green light until Hanks fell into it, and then you know Tom was coming off a big, and which which I think was released during production, and then he became like you know once Big came out, he was like the the bankable comedy lead in Hollywood. So we got real lucky with with timing with Tom, and also I mean the fact that he's just uh, the greatest guy ever. I mean, as cool a dude and as classy a guy as 
you could ever expect to uh, to work with, as is evident from when you see him on the Golden Globes or whatever. I mean, he's everything you think he is. He's he's just really aces, and uh, and so we got really lucky, and and we shot the whole thing on the Universal backlot over summer, so he didn't have to travel, which was appealing to him. There was a cool ensemble, Carrie Fisher, who I like tremendously was in Bruce Dern, who is just hilarious and the greatest. So so that was a really nice experience. Now, in that, during that experience, from, from your original written screenplay, how much did it change by the time it was shot? Um, I think there's more of me in that movie uh, than in any other thing that I've had produced, but uh, there are things that that I would go back and change and there were things that were, you know, put into the movie that, you know, originally I wrote it as this little sort of dark, weird comedy that I thought somebody would make for a million bucks and then, you know, Tom falls into it and all the rules change because you get a major star and a a big, big budget. So, um, So I think it was sort of a much larger, broader, more colorful film than I had imagined it. I thought it was going to be like this dark little sort of, you know, Hitchcockian thing and kind of like a little bit more subtle than it actually is, although I thought Tom was great in it. Um, and and it and it got, you know, I mean, Joe Dante was directing it and it was, you know, it was very broad and, and very colorful and had, you know, and, I mean, I think I remember the, the whole nightmare sequence was all Joe and, um, Originally, the script had a very sort of dark ending. I don't know how, how well you remember the ending, but they load Ray into the ambulance, and then the ambulance takes off, and it turns out that the Klopex are actually driving the ambulance. And the original end of the movie was the ambulance just pulls down the street, and that's the last we see of Ray, and the audience is left wondering what happened to him with the Klopex behind the wheel. But uh, but the studio was like, no, 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 you can't leave it ambiguous. Like, that was Tom Hanks. You know, he's got, you know, we can't do that. So so if you watch the movie now, it sort of ends two or three different times as we're trying to figure out what exactly the right uh, the right beat is to end the movie on. Although I, I like the little piece that he has with Corey Feldman at the very end of, uh, of the release uh, uh, version. But originally, he was, he was left in dire straits. Um, being taken and hauled off in the ambulance by the club back. So that was, I guess that was the biggest change. Now, now, after you write that, and it, you know, people, Tom Hanks is in it, how does the traction on you change in Hollywood? Are people calling you because, you know, you, they look at it, even if they don't know the backdrop, you wrote it, it's a, you wrote a Tom Hanks movie. How did, how did it change? Did people start calling on you more? Yeah, you know, you have your, you have your windows of hotness, you know, you get a picture like that made. I mean, it wasn't a monster hit. It had a fairly respectable opening, but it wasn't a monster hit. Um, I think it made its money back ultimately. But um, uh, yeah, you have a window of hotness where you have people coming after you for for projects. I forget exactly what I did immediately after the Burbs. Let's see, that was like '89. Oh, then I rolled over. Then I then I got into a, a writing partnership. I did a Chevy Chase movie after that called Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Um, and so, yeah, you can trade on the heat a little bit, but it's, you know, it, the, the flame goes out quickly because there's so many people doing it out there. And there's other guys that have, like, you know, 
big monster deals at the studios and, and they put those dudes on or whatever. I was always kind of like freelancing around. Um, so I'm, it's never not a struggle. The only other time that I, that I felt I had perceptible heat as a screenwriter was after George of the Jungle opened real big. But Disney like rolled me right into Inspector Gadget after that. And uh, I was one of like 14 writers on that project, but I was the first guy in. Um, but those, you know, those windows don't stay open really a really long time. I mean, you gotta, you know, strike it, strike while the iron is hot. How many old adages am I gonna do on this interview? But uh, strike while the iron is hot. So yeah, the window is open for a while, and, and and the heat's there for a while. But you know, now you said you had it a, turns over. You said you had a writing partner for a while. Yeah, I was, I was working with Bob Collector. Um, uh, that was right about after the Burbs, I think. And uh, we did a, we got a couple of pretty good projects together. We ended up getting one picture made um, with Chevy Chase. We did, we worked with Chevy a lot. We had a deal at Warner Brothers, and um, I had been working on my own for six or seven years. By then, it was it was fun to have a partner because we could sit around together and make each other laugh. And uh, um, so we had a deal at Warner Brothers. We worked a little bit on. We did a little production work on Christmas Vacation. We worked on, um, the heck else did we do? I know, we worked on a couple of things for Chevy and uh, ended up getting this uh, movie made with John Carpenter directing, which is, boy, that's an odd pairing, Chevy Chase and John Carpenter. Um, but we got it made uh, based on a book, Memoirs of an Invisible Man. And boy, that didn't that didn't do any business at all. I, they didn't know what to do with that one. It was like, huh, Chevy, I think, respectably wanted to stretch a little bit you know he'd been a huge box office star for warner brothers in the 80s and he wanted to do something a little different than clark griswold and so he got this book uh memoirs of an invisible man and uh you know i i think the studio wasn't sure how to sell him as as something other than clark griswold and uh so ultimately that was a that was a tough project but it was a really good script at one point i don't know what the hell happened but yeah. Now, how did anyway. how did you find your writing partner? How do you like you're you're established writer? How do you go about finding a writing partner back then? Um, he was a he was a pal of my agents, Bob, uh, uh, and we met at like a barbecue and having a couple of drinks and making each other laugh. And he had done you know a couple of uh, a couple of low budget uh, pictures shot in Mexico. I think he was a really funny guy and a really bright guy, and. There was a project out there that other mutual friends of ours were getting some traction on. Um, this guy, Steve Zacharias, who wrote Revenge of the Nerds, and he had a deal at Paramount, and he had this idea to do sort of, um, I guess the easiest way to explain it would be uh, a precursor to Borat. It was called The Vulgarians, and and it was like, uh, it was about three idiot brothers, not unlike the Festerunk brothers on Saturday Night Live and not unlike Borat, who come from this, you know, mythical Eastern Bloc country called Bulgaria and come to America. And um, and that we wanted to, we set a goal for ourselves to make the crudest, lowest possible uh, comedy that we could. And uh, so that's how Bob and I got thrown together. So we just wrote this like crazy, ridiculous, broad, vulgar, um, screenplay called the vulgarians and, and you know that got a little traction um 
bounced around for a while, but that's how I met him. I mean, he was a he was a friend of my he was an old buddy of my agents, and we met at a barbecue, and this project fell into our laps, and uh, and I think we ended up writing about I don't know five or six screenplays together. We were probably together for about three years, something like that. Now I'm looking at your IMDb, and after Inspector Gadget, there's a ten year gap. Were you still in Hollywood? Were you still working, or did you take off to raise a family? Yes, basically. Uh, we uh, uh, moved from L.A. back to Chicago. Um, all three of my kids were born in L.A. Um, but, but yeah, at, right about that time, George of the Jungle, Inspector Gadget, we moved back to Chicago. And I, you know, um, I was still doing, you know, I was still picking up screenplay jobs. and um, But I was raising my kids, you know, back here. We had made a decision. Their mother was uh, from Chicago as well. Uh, we actually met in Los Angeles, but it always figured, you know, one of these days we'll we'll move back to Chicago. So my kids were born out there, and we decided, oh, my, now might be a great time. So uh, so we moved back to Chicago. And yeah, there was a a ten year gap where I was still working. I didn't get anything produced, but uh, but I was still working. And uh, so that's yeah, that's the explanation for that gap in my career. Well, now, why did you move back? Like, I moved back uh, two years ago to New Jersey. So many people I know are leaving L.A. now, because especially yeah. you have kids. And, you know, you want. I, I hear a lot of people say they don't want to raise their kids in L.A., you know, and something that, and I still think, you know, I grew up in New Jersey. You're, you know, you moved back to Chicago. I do think there's a better uh, work ethic and just a better, it's just a different feel in you know, Chicago and New York and New Jersey. Is that why you wanted to ra move your, raise your kids in Chicago just because the school system's better, it's cleaner, it's nicer? Uh, I, I think, yes, ease of living. Um, and, you know, their grandparents were here. We wanted them to know their grandparents before they croaked. And, you know, you know, without sounding like I'm denigrating my friends that still live out there and have raised beautiful children... But it was like, yeah, I kind of wanted my kids to have sort of a Midwestern upbringing. Um, uh, and I, you know, it was okay with me if they weren't overexposed to the television and film industry. And, uh, and as it worked out, they're all, they're all independent, living on their own and, and, and working uh, at careers and, and, and doing well here, not in the business. And that's okay with me. Um, I mean, there's a lot to be said for being an artist, but, you know, it's a difficult road to hoe, and I, I had a lot of really lucky breaks, and I was very fortunate to, to get the run that I did, but, you know, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have discouraged any of my kids if they wanted to pursue the arts as a career, but I would have been sure to be very realistic with them about, you know, how I felt about their prospects and, and what they could expect to face. So I was more than happy that they that they chose not to go that way. And I think, obviously, the odds would have been much greater had we stayed in California and they'd grown up around that business that they might have drifted that way. So, um, so yeah, that's yeah, that's why we came back. Now, now, now you're living in Chicago, and uh, now then, you know, you're the creator of Harry Henry Danger. Were you tr were you pitching stuff from Chicago when you were? Li I mean, how did that work? Do you have to fly out to LA to pitch, or how did it work to get projects in you know in I can't think of the word in motion, living in the Midwest yeah. yet in LA? How did that work? Yeah, um, yeah, basically, I had to fly out there and pitch stuff. 
And uh, going back to making the grade, as a matter of fact, um, I start, you know, after that 10-year gap, I started doubling down again on my L.A. contacts, and I got back in touch with Gene Quintano, who had written and produced Making the Grade. And, and I had been, you know, kicking around um, this idea of a kid who was a, um, an apprentice to a superhero in, in, you know, various media. I thought, eh, maybe it'll be a book, eh, maybe it'll be a movie, eh, eh, maybe it's going to be a television show. And Dan Schneider, who was the rock star producer at Nickelodeon at the time, had been in making the grade. That was his first job in in uh, in the entertainment business. We'd be, he was living in Memphis where we shot the picture and, and Gene cast him in the movie. And that was his first gig. And so, so we went back and I went and I pitched him this idea and he liked it. And you know, long story short, he gets it on the air and that's Henry Danger. So, um, so yeah, it was about going back and forth, and you know, that was uh, obviously the drawback of moving to Chicago is I can't exactly get in my car and drive over the hill to 20th Century Fox to take a meeting at two o'clock in the afternoon on the spur of the moment. You know, I had to like plan weeks where I could be in LA and take 40 different meetings or whatever, and uh, you know, and take my chances, and that that made it difficult. But um, but you know, you keep slugging away, you stay in the ring, and you know, eventually something lands, hopefully, if you're lucky. Now, so, yeah, that, that's... Go ahead. I know, I was going to say, as a creator, what what was your... What were your responsibilities different than when you... You know, we know as a screenwriter and a TV writer, you write, but as a creator, do you have more uh, responsibility and, uh, you know, more stuff to do? Um, you, you would if... Like, I partnered with Dan Schneider. He already had a company in place at Nickelodeon that had had, you know, a 20-year run. I mean, I don't think there was a year for the last 20 years that Dan didn't have a show on, on primetime on, on Nickelodeon. I mean, his run was amazing. So that that was re- – I'm the only one that ever uh, co-created a show with him, by the way. He's, he's a – He's a co-creator on it um, because he's the guy who got it on the air. It wasn't me. I mean, he told Nickelodeon, "No, this idea's got legs, and let's let's do it." So, so basically, that idea just kind of, you know, we jacked it into the to the uh, Schneider's Bakery machinery, which is his production company, and uh, and it and it happened. Um, ordinarily, you create a show like that, and depending on who, you, like, I don't have a long list of television credits. So, but but if I did as as a creator, like if you know, if I'm like I don't know J.J. Abrams or stuff, or, or or something, yeah, he would be the showrunner. In other words, he would be he would be the boss of the of the show. He'd hire all the writers. He'd hire his you know uh, his executive. Well, he might not run the writers' room. He might hire somebody to do that. But but ordinarily, yes, there would be um, a lot more responsibility for me on a Dan Schneider show. No, I was just a, a senior writer and creator on the show. I only actually worked on the show for the first season. Um, I was in L.A. for, I don't know, about 18 months to uh, produce the pilot and the first season of the show, and then I uh, I stepped away and came back to Chicago, and, and you know, the, the Schneider production company uh, uh, ran the show for the, for the subsequent seasons. Now, I was, as I did my research on you, I found you're, you're very, there's not a lot out there on you. I'll tell you that much. I was trying to find different stuff. But um, 
I read an article that you were interviewed, I think it was in Evanston, Evanston paper. You're a big film historian. Kind of, yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a film nerd, yeah. <laughs> now, when, when, did, when did this love of film, when did you start really getting into film? Um, so, as a kid growing up in Chicago, you know, there were movies on television all the time. And um, I grew up in Park Ridge, and Park Ridge has one of the great landmark Art Deco movie theaters called the Pickwick, right in the middle of uh, of downtown. And it's it's a it's a gorgeous movie theater. So I spent a lot of afternoons there. They were just always my they were always my favorite thing to watch. And you know, as a kid growing up, there were movies on network television all the time. Of course, chopped up by commercials. But you know, as a kid, you don't care. Uh, there was a 3.30 movie and a 10.30 movie and, and, you know, a movie of the week and a Thursday night movie, a Friday night movie, a Saturday night movie. And I just always, always loved movies. And then I got to Northwestern and I was a film major. And then that opened up, you know, a whole world of classic films and, and international films. And I took a course uh, that was taught by a gentleman named Jack Ellis on French cinema uh, of, the, of the 30s that was fascinating to me and then I you know I learned about uh, Preston Sturgis and and you know John Ford and and basically spent my four undergraduate years sitting in a dark damp room in a basement of a horrible building called the speech annex on the Evanston campus that was I think built in World War II to store bullets or manure or something and, and they that's where that's where the soap guys hung out. It was just awful. The floor slanted and it leaked and it was cold. But that's where they showed movies. And again, this is like before VHS. So they actually had 16 millimeter projectors showing these old prints, um, you know, almost on a sheet hanging on the wall. That's how the production facilities were back in those days. And, and we watched movies and talked about them. And it was really, my thing as interbred was not as much production as it was theory and criticism so that's that's kind of how it you know it sort of fed my uh, my Jones and um, so you know I mean just over the years I've I just you know spend all my free time watching movies and um, last year I don't yeah I, I guess last year the the article you're talking about I did a, a short uh, uh, film series at, at Studio 5 which is the, the venue where we do the New Year's show and they have a nice production facility uh, projection facility there and I showed a series of about a dozen films last year like one a month on Sunday afternoons I love matinees and talked about them so that was really fun um, but yeah now how do you think movies have changed, you know, in all those years? Because it's so funny that now, because movies, we watched The Irishman the other night, and it's, what, three and a half hours. And, and going into it, because you see on Facebook, people are like, oh, it's so long, which always cracks me up because people will binge watch a series on a weekend, but a three-hour movie is too long. So me and my wife oh, decided... Right. good point, yeah. It's, like, it's crazy, but me and my wife decided, you know what, maybe we'll watch the... Because the, you're reading all the people's stuff. So maybe we'll watch part on Friday and part on Saturday. But we sat down, and we liked it, and we watched the whole thing. But now movies seem so much longer. As someone who's been, you know, loves film like you, do you like a longer movie, or do you want it to be, you know, like the ninety-five minute type? Um, you know, it depends. I mean, I get once upon a time in Hollywood was long, but I didn't notice. Not, you know, not the second time. I saw it twice. 
and and the second time it felt a little long, but the, but the first time I saw it, I was like, no man, I can I can hang out here. I mean, Tarantino's always a good time, you know. And um, so, um, nah, I don't, you know, I don't really feel like oh, a movie's got to be ninety five minutes long. I don't I don't really hold to that. It just it just kind of depends. Yes, I thought The Irishman was really long. We got uh, uh, Linda, my wife, and I watched it. We got three hours in and had to go somewhere. And I said, well, we'll watch the last whatever is it left after three hours. You know, when we get home, we got home and I plugged it in. And what, the last 20 minutes is watching Robert De Niro be lonely in an old person's home. <laughs> so I thought that was a little little overlong. But, uh, but I, you know, I like the epics. Yeah, I don't know if you remember, um, but uh, when I was a kid in the 60s, um, they had CBS had a thing called the CBS Thursday and Friday night movies. And, uh, uh, they both started at eight o'clock central time. It would have been nine o'clock Eastern time. If you're in Jersey and you're probably not as old as me, so you might not remember, but, but it was a, a Thursday and Friday night movie. And they would take the longer films of the day and cut them up into two pieces. And the ones that I remember were like the epic world war two movies, like the great escape. So you have, the first half of The Great Escape on Thursday night, and then they'd show you, you know, clips of the second half for Friday night to get you to tune in. And uh, and that was really cool. For, and those were big, long, epic movies, obviously, long enough to chop up into two hours, uh, or, or rather uh, cover four hours of broadcast time with commercials, of course. But um, but I love those pictures, you know, the where Eagles Dare and the Dirty Dozen, those guys were all well over two hours, as, as I recall. Um, so, so I'm down as long as I'm engaged. You know, it's just it's uh, what strikes me is movies today. Most of them, in my mind, and this is just my opinion, they just take themselves so seriously, and they're so ponderous and slow. And that's what really gets me. It's like, okay, you know, I get the point. You know, I don't have to be here for two hours watching, you know, somebody looking out a window at birds flying and, you know, I'm supposed to figure out what he's internalizing. I mean, please. That's the thing about Tarantino. He's, he's having a good time, man. And, and there's something new in every frame. And it's a, and he loves the movies and it comes out that, that he loves them so much. So, you know, it's, it's, it's all about tone more than length for me. If, if I can hang on for the ride, I'm, I'm down. And, and if you can get it done in 90 minutes, I think that's great too, you know? Now, what are you, are you working on something right now or have you been pitching stuff lately over the last two years? I mean, after Harry Danger, you know, you probably got some heat. What have you been doing? So I've been um, ramping up, you know, more feature projects um although trying to figure out what the what the marketplace looks like obviously the model has changed everybody's trying to land something at netflix you know for like an extended uh 10 episode series or whatever it is uh or multiple multiple seasons of 10 episode series so um you know i wrote uh I did a feature for some Chinese producers a couple of years ago, just a, just a straight action movie that I did with a partner. Um, and, uh, to be honest with you, I don't know if they made it or not. <laughs> um, so that was, that was a gig. I mean, I'm kind of more into like, you know, writing features again, although 
I'm sort of slowing down, but I've got my uh, I've got my head sort of wrapped around uh, a, a new feature concept that I might have an in somewhere to pitch. But um, I'm always trying to write something. But you know, this uh, the, the New Year's show that I did with Kroger over the holidays that took up most of my fall because we had to you know we had to script I don't know a dozen sketches and some stuff like that so that took a lot of time actually but um but yeah I'm always trying to you know I'm always I, the comedy landscape sort of flummoxes me right now I'm not even sure I want to write a comedy next time I'm thinking about maybe an action picture or 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 something uh or a thriller because you know comedy is a it seems to be a very dangerous area now um so uh I don't know. I was just re- I, I read an interview with um, Todd Phillips, who directed Joker, and you know, coming off of the Hangover pictures, they said, "Why, why would you go to like a, a dark place like the Joker?" And he said, "You know, comedy's dangerous." He goes, "Why do I want to get a bunch of people jumping all over me on Twitter for making offensive jokes?" You know, he goes, <laughs> and I'm like, "Yeah, good point." I mean, it's 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 made it really really tough. It is true. Um, I mean, I, I mean, I occasionally, you know. I occasionally do a stand-up show back here. Someone calls, and luckily the ones I'm going are older crowds because I did a show in Philly with my buddy, and the crowd was much younger, and they were just, like, groaning at everything, and it's like, it's comedy, man. You know, it's like lighten up. It, it just it blows my mind sometimes. Exactly, exactly. Um, and so that's, you know, that's how we get our yayas out doing this New Year's show, and it's, it's kind of old school. I mean, we're not... We're not crude or offensive or anything, but I mean, you know, we we do stuff that makes us laugh. Right. And if it doesn't make you laugh, okay, that's okay. But I mean, it's you know, we're not out. You know, we don't have our knives out for anybody. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it's it's tough and it's it's discouraging. Well, you know, I, I want to thank you for taking the time today, Dana. As I said, it's so funny. I know I saw Gary posted a picture with you, and I was like. I sent Gary a message, and I said, "Do you think he'd do my show?" Because I mean, I am like the big making the great. <laughs> The big making the grade fan, <laughs> and you weren't even well, supposed to be it. in it. <laughs> anyway, well, I'll tell you what. I mean, I think it is available on a DVD. I have a copy of the DVD somewhere. I think I probably got it on Amazon or something. So, so if you if you're looking for it, you might be able to get it. I cool. Don't know. I'll check it out. Anyway, I want to thank you, people. Go look up uh, Dana Olson. Look at his. Go go see his. Uh, go see his movies. You know, just go rent them or go on Netflix because, you know, you can see he's he's done a lot of good work and uh, I want to thank you people. So check Dana out. Check my Twitter out, people. I'm at Cooper Talk. My website, coopertalk.net. I have over 765 episodes. You can also find it on iTunes. Search Cooper Talk one word. Instagram, Cooper Talk one. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time. <laughs>